shepherd I'll not want He makes me lie in pastures green He leads me by the still, still waters His goodness restores my soul And I will trust in Welcome to St. James, uh, 1030 people. It's good to see you, and welcome to the people who are watching on the live stream or are watching the recording. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us, too. Um, I, you can go ahead and look at the announcements for yourself. Everything is on schedule today, except for there's no new members class tonight. We're off for another couple of weeks. But other than that, everything is on, uh, is on track for normal. Check out the, um, uh, the announcement about the Madison County Elementary Schools mission. Uh, that, that started off, and uh, Sandy is here. You can talk to her about if you want more information. That started off as uh, the elementary schools in Glen Carbon, and then other schools in the county started calling Sandy and saying, can you help us out too? And so uh, Christmas is coming, and there's, we usually have a pretty good push for help with that when Christmas gets close. So uh, check out that announcement. If you have any questions, you can get a hold of Cheryl or Sandy. The college care packages announcement too. Take, t- take some time to read that. And then uh, Stacy's going to come and talk about our Operation Christmas Box. Hi, good morning. Today's the day for shoe boxes. If you forgot to bring your box back, bring it Tuesday night during youth group time because we will be sorting through all of them, collecting them, packing them up, and delivering them over to our local um, d- distribution center that's collecting all the boxes and turning them in. We'll be heading to Trinity Lutheran. So if you miss Tuesday night's deadline, you can take it straight to their church anytime this week and drop it off there and they'll be shipping them off to where they need to go. So if you need a label, you can print them out online on their website. Otherwise, I'll have a bunch of them Tuesday night and I'll be putting them on all the boxes. If you just write in a black marker on the front, the gender and the age group, I'll stick a label on there for you. So get those turned in. I do have one other announcement. 
On November 30th, Tuesday night from 6 to 8, our youth group is going to be participating in an LCMS prayer vigil for life. The Supreme Court is going to have a hearing the very next day that's very important about the abortion stance here in America. So the LCMS is live streaming their prayer vigil. If you want more details, you can go to their website and look up um, the prayer vigil for their life group. And you can come here and join us from 6 to 8. We'll have a little coffee bar, and we'll all be praying for our country. Thank you. Thank you, Stacy. Uh, stand with me if you would, and let's open in prayer and then continue in worship. Let's pray. God, we confess that we've uh, built uh, false temples, and we've placed our hopes and our dreams and our worship there, and they can't possibly carry the weight that we've put on them, and they've crumbled and are crumbling and will be eventually torn down, and we just need you so much, Father. We need, we need you to give yourself to us in such a way that our hearts are, and our words, our actions are drawn to worship. And we can't work that up in ourselves. We can't talk ourselves into it. We can't have an emotional experience that will get us there. Father, we need your presence as your word is, as we all read your word this morning and as uh, I preach and as we receive your gifts in the sacrament and as we sing praises to you. Father, we're asking you by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your son, Jesus, to give us yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. We pour out our souls to you, because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again, and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Psalm 16 together. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Daniel chapter 12. A couple things real quick about this. Uh, Daniel mentions uh, Michael here at the beginning. Don't really have time to go into this. But in the book of Daniel, especially at the end, it's, uh, Michael is a prince. The, 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 the different angels, different uh, supernatural beings, it, it appears, have authority over different ethnic groups. So Michael, the prince over Israel, has done battle with whoever the prince of Persia is. And we don't really have time to talk about that, but if you're interested, there's, we can talk about it later. The second thing I wanted to point out real quick is that we frequently think of the resurrection of the dead as a New Testament concept, but there are several places in the Old Testament where it's super explicit, and this is one of them. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, just continuing on from where we were at with the epistle reading last week in Hebrews chapter 10. Again, the emphasis here is that in Jesus, we have a perfect high priest who makes one perfect sacrifice for sins for all times. And that makes obsolete any sort of system where you need to perpetually offer sacrifices for sins. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, according Jeremiah 31. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened it for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. Beautiful reference to baptism. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 13. So this is following right after the text that we read last week where Jesus is sitting in the temple watching people put money in. Jesus has been, um, for, for chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has been in judgment on the temple. He is going to destroy it. He shuts it down. He, he, shut, he closes it down for a brief period of time and explains, I have the authority to do this because I am the Lord of the temple. And now he's going to step away from the temple in Mark 13. He's going to walk away from it and put distance between himself and the temple and sit in judgment on it. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings describing the temple. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so again, Mark is giving you language of Jesus now against the temple. Opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished, when the temple is going to be destroyed? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever's given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the gospel of the Lord. Okay, you may be seated. So we've been uh, reading Mark this summer, of course, and uh, the big theme here of, that we've been talking about is the kingdom of God coming here on earth as it is in heaven. That's Jesus' goal, to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Jesus never in the gospel of Mark tells you how to get to heaven when you die. He seems to be largely uninterested in that topic. Instead, what he talks about is how can God rule and reign here on this earth? Through his person, and by unity with this, by, by union with this person through his people. And as we've been talking about that, the past month, we've seen these two sort of streams, which are kind of running in parallel to each other. And one of the streams is identity. Who is your identity? And Jesus frequently tells, Jesus frequently is, is dealing with people who have crafted and shaped an identity for themselves in stuff that's not Jesus. And he's trying to get them to drop those things, to leave those things, and to unite himself to his mission for Israel. So for the disciples, it's, um, you know, your identity is we are gathering together this revolutionary force that's going to fight against Rome. And Jesus has to tell them, you forget that. I'm going to the cross. Like, join me for my way of being Israel. Let's go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. With the religious leaders, it's their, uh, you know, their, pure, their ritual purity. It's their high level of ritual morality. And Jesus has to say to them, that's not going to be the ticket. You need to abandon that, you know, your, your status as the rabbis, as the Pharisees, as the, the morally pure ones, and join me for my way. Several times he talks to rich people and he tells them, hey, look, your money's doing you no good. You need to give, you know, sell everything you have and give it all to the poor and come and follow me. And Jesus is consistently saying, all the identities that you craft for yourself that make sense of your own reality, you've got to scrap all of those and join up with me and make me your identity. That's one of the streams that we've been talking about. Lately, the past few weeks, we've been looking at this other stream, which is kind of running side by side with, which is this, the temple has to go. He walks into the temple and he shuts it down, basically asks, you know, who gives you the authority to do these things? And essentially he says over the course of chapters, end of chapter 11, all of chapter 12, I'm in charge of the temple. This is my place. It's I'm the Lord here and I'm going to end up shutting it down because I can do it. These things come together in chapter 13, which is the last chapter that we have before we get into the, uh, you know, the, the Passion Week narrative. And what's happening in chapter 13 is Jesus is joining these two streams. 
Your identity here in Israel is tied up with this building. This temple in Jerusalem is the place where God lives. It's the place where forgiveness of sins happens, you believe. It's the place where three times a year you come here. It's your social and cultural center. It's the place that almost all of you believe that when God finally acts to beat Rome, to kick the Romans out, that the revolution will start in this building. And I'm telling you, that identity of yours, we are temple people, it's going to have to go. And I'm going to end up taking it away because I'm going to destroy this building. That's joined up with the, the, the theme of um, identity. Your identity is going to have to go. And so um, um, Jesus predicts the, uh, the destruction of the temple and his disciples. Uh, this doesn't come out so much in our English translation because it just doesn't come out. But like the disciples are like, this is really concerning. Like this temple being destroyed, like what's that going to look like? How is that going to happen? What, how will we know when this is about to happen? This is catastrophic. And Jesus spends chapter 13 talking about this is what's going to happen when the temple goes. Why do we need to talk about this? Like, I don't, why is this important? A building that none of us are interested in, except maybe if you're like a Bible history nut, then for some sort of historical perspective or like archaeological interest. But what does it have to do with us? Well, a couple things here. The first thing is this is that in Jesus' mind, the eventual destruction of the temple, which, spoiler alert, that happens in AD 70. What Jesus is prophesying here is going to happen about 40 years after this. Rome's going to come and wipe out the temple, the, the whole temple facility. In Jesus' mind, the destruction of the temple is going to be validation that he is Lord. Jesus connects these two things. The destruction of the temple is a validation that he is, after his resurrection, now Lord of the universe. He says it this way in the Gospel of John chapter 2, verse 19, when he's asked there, who gives you the authority to shut down the temple? He says, tear this place down, and in three days I'll raise it up again. He wants them to know, maybe not at the moment, it's the kind of thing that's going to have to sit for a few years, and then maybe they'll think about it after his resurrection. He wants them to know that when this temple is destroyed and he is raised from the dead, those are flip sides of the same coin. Why? Because what the temple functioned as in the Old Testament, a place for God to live, a place, actually the only place where sins could be forgiven, is now no longer necessary. Since Jesus has died and risen from the dead, the place where God lives is Jesus. The place where sins are forgiven is Jesus. The place where God reveals himself is Jesus. The temple is no longer necessary. And Jesus, these two things go together. And so we should be interested in it. And also, that, by the way, this is a side note, that should help you when you read in the Old Testament about the tabernacle or the temple, what we know now is that we're actually reading about this sort of precursor to Jesus. But here's the second thing. Here's the second reason why this is important to us. You might not have a building that's a temple that you've invested your hopes, your political dreams, your religious dreams, your social dreams in. But all of us have temples that we've invested our identity in. Places of worship. Places where we find purpose and meaning and community. All of us have done this. We all build false temples. Last night, um, we, we, were at, we went to the high school. Um, at, we went to Mel's because there was a theater production that Harry was in. And um, it was this, I, I, somebody tell me how to explain this better. It was, this, it, was, it was a theater production. It was basically a musical review that they did. But a bunch of different theaters around the country were doing it at the same time, the same review. Like professional theaters, amateur theaters, high school theaters were doing the same review. And the whole point was that it was going to happen at the same time, and it was a fundraiser because theaters and high school music programs had taken a financial hit because of COVID, right, and uh, performances being shut down. And now that we can have performances in person again, we're going to celebrate that. But anyway, in the middle of this review, the, the, the organization, which is some big musical theater, theater organization, I'm sorry, I should have more info. Uh, there's a, a video promo in the middle with a lot of, you know, voices from the uh, entertainment world, specifically the Broadway world were speaking, Stephen Sondheim and uh, Bernadette Peters. And at one point, Harvey Feinstein uh, said a few things. And it just struck me because, of course, I was thinking about this sermon today in this text. And Harvey Feinstein, one of the things that he said about how precious it was that we can all be back going to theater again is he said, the theater is my temple. He used that line, the theater is my temple. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he, if that's like something he, if that's the way he usually talks about theater. And so I, I Googled, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein saying that theater is my temple. And it turns out that's like a, one of his common, that's one of his common 
uh, metaphors for like what theater means to him. And I found this quote, which is, this is kind of what he said last night, but it was like, it was dark in the room and the video. I didn't get a chance to write it down, but I did get this down. He said this, theater, this is what Harvey Feinstein says, theater is my temple and my religion and my act of faith. People sit together in a room and believe together. So for him, that's, that's temple. That's where he finds his identity and meaning. Now, I, I wish that I could actually preach a whole sermon on that line because it's so juicy. So first of all, when you go to theater and you get together and you believe something with other people, everybody knows that it's just suspended disbelief. You're not actually believing, right? I mean, you're just sort of like, for the next hour and a half, the next two hours, let's watch whatever. Let's watch Oklahoma and pretend like this is a true story and kind of get invested. That's the first thing. If, 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 if Feinstein thinks that that's the way that church is, and by the way, there are lots of religious people who do think of church in that way. I, I, non-religious people, certainly, but even religious people who think, let's get together for an hour on Sunday mornings, suspend disbelief for a few minutes, and then we'll get back to our normal secular lives. That's really not what's going on here. But the second thing I want to point out is, in Feinstein's construct, if the temple, if, if theater is the temple, then who is he? Who is the performer? The performer is the icon. The performer is the idol. The performer is the deity. There's so many problems with this. But first of all, let me just say this. Before we bash on Harvey Feinstein, we all build these places. We all build these houses of worship where we have identity and meaning and community. And it, it might not be musical theater for you. In fact, it probably isn't. It could be your job. It could be your spouse. It could be your quest for romance. It could be your financial security. It could be the way that you perceive that other people perceive you in conversation. Whatever it is, we build these houses of worship. And the reason why this text is so important, one of the reasons why, is because these temples are being destroyed. And you have to know it's going to be cataclysmic to you when it happens. You've got to be prepared for the chaos of your life when Jesus starts destroying your false temples. And the way it looks is this. The disciples say, what is this going to look like? And Jesus basically says, well, let me give you a description and it's not going to be pretty. First of all, there's going to be false messiahs. Verse, uh, verse uh, five, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Many, many false messiahs will show up and they will lead many astray. There's going to be many people. It could be, uh, I don't know, it could be like, uh, it could be a lover. It could be a politician. It could be your favorite economic or financial advisor who says, follow me and I will fix everything. If you vote for me, I can make this place right again. Watch out for those people because they're going to pop up and they're going to pretend that they're messiahs and they're going to delude many people into investing faith into them. Watch out for the false messiahs. Also, uh, verse seven, when you hear of wars, there's going to be wars. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, natural disasters. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will there's uh, religious persecution coming up. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a word not for pastors or preachers or teachers. It's a word for when you're persecuted and you're delivering testimony in a court of law. Uh, the Holy Spirit will be with you. And then finally, there's family fracturing, the loss of family members. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And then finally, cultural irrelevancy. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is like large-scale, multifaceted cataclysm. cataclysm. When, when your idols, when your temples, when our temples that we build for ourselves start to be destroyed. It's not a simple of matter of like, well, let's just change the way I think about things. It's radical destruction of the life that we've built for ourselves, and you have to be prepared for it. So what's the gospel hope in this text? I'll, I'll freely admit to you that next week it's much easier because Jesus actually talks about the coming of the Son of Man on power and with great glory. This week, it's a little bit less, it's a little bit more implied here. But there are three things I want to point out to you from this text where there is gospel, where Jesus says, Here's where you can find hope. When your idols begin to be destroyed, when the things that you've placed your hope on, your health, uh, your money, your attractiveness, whatever it is, uh, uh, your career, when the things that you've placed your hope in start to fall apart, there's three places where you can go to get hope. 
I'm going to give you those three things. I probably haven't said these correctly, but let me point out these three things. First of all, the last verse in the text will be the first one. Endure to the end. And I'll tell you what I mean as we go along here. And it sounds like a rule, but you will be uh, hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I know it sounds like a rule, endure to the end. Here's the rule you have to endure. First of all, before we get into that, let me just point out to you how interesting it is that Jesus doesn't say, okay, things are going to fall apart. Your family might turn against you. There might be natural disasters. You, you might, you know, there might be some sort of pandemic. Uh, you might get a cancer diagnosis. Uh, you might lose a child. You might lose a spouse. There's going to be wars that threaten you. All these things are going to happen. Now Jesus says, let me tell you how to fix those things. He doesn't do that. He doesn't tell us how to fix those things. He just says, endure to the end. Do not abandon Jesus. Do not abandon Jesus. Here's the subtext. This happens to all of us who are Christians. Bad stuff starts to happen. And one of our first responses is, God, why is this? Why, why are you doing this? Why is this happening? And his answer is going to be, because I'm tearing down your temples. Now, now, what I don't want to do is, I don't want to be insensitive here and say that it's never appropriate to mourn. It's definitely it's appropriate to mourn. We should mourn that there are wars in the world. We should mourn that there are fractured families. We should mourn each other's terminal illnesses. We, we should mourn the Christian church's cultural irrelevancy. However, what Jesus is saying is not like, let's figure out a way to fix those things, but endure, endure. Stay faithful to me. Stay faithful to me. Endure to the end, he says. What does that mean? What does it mean to endure to the end? Well, it means that there's an end, right? So if uh, I like road trips. My family likes road trips. But let's just say that you're a person who doesn't like long car trips. If you're on a long car trip, you endure to the end. Why do you endure to the end? Because it builds character? No. Because there must be some sort of lesson that God wants me to learn on this road trip. No. You endure to the end because of the promise that the road trip will someday end and you'll be home. That's why you endure. There is an end to the cataclysm, the cataclysm of our temples being destroyed. It comes to an end. Look, so what does this mean? It, the death of your idols, the death of your temples is not the ultimate reality. That's, a, that's a one thing that we believe when, when, when times are bad is that this is ultimate reality. And Jesus is saying, no, it ends. There's another ultimate reality beyond that. There is a new creation in me beyond that. Endure till that point. Endure to the end and you will be saved. It's a little bit pedantic here, but let me point out the passive tense there. You will be saved. He's not saying endure to the end so that you, so that you can get saved. Endure to the end so that you can save yourself. Endure to the end so that you, somebody will save you. Endure to the end so that you passively will be saved. So we don't endure to the end in order to get saved. We don't endure to the end as an act of uh, you know, uh, uh, earning. We endure to the end as an act of faith. We endure to the end because we believe that there is an end to what we're enduring. Endure to the end. Do not give up on Jesus. Remain faithful to Jesus. Um, second one, preach the gospel. Verses 9 through 11. This is interesting to me. It's talking about political persecution. They will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Tell me if you think this line is weird, verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then he jumps back to the theme of like persecution. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious, etc. So what is that? It seems kind of random. Like you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be on trial. You're going to get beaten. The gospel must be preached to all nations. Anyway, back to you being on trial. You're going to be appearing before governors and kings, and when you do, don't give thought to what you have to speak because the Holy Spirit with you. What's the deal with that random line in there? Well, it feels random to me because I never associate persecution with the proclamation of the gospel. And that's bad on me because what Jesus is doing here is saying that the persecution, persecution for Jesus' sake is the stadium. It's the venue in which gospel proclamation actually makes the most sense. When you are being persecuted before kings and before governors, for whoever in the culture is persecuting you, know that the gospel is at that moment being preached to all nations. Those two things go together. So why would this be? What does it mean, what does it mean to you 
if I'm wealthy, which I'm not, and I'm perfectly healthy, and like I'm super attractive, and everybody loves me, and like I'm always like pulling spades out, and everything goes my way, and I tell you, Jesus is Lord of the universe. What do you hear when you hear somebody who everything goes their way say Jesus is Lord of the universe? Well, first of all, like I'm really glad that they say Jesus is Lord of the universe, but I actually, it troubles me. I just, you guys know this. When, when you hear like a professional football player at the end of the game and they've won the big game, you know, thank, thank Kurt Warner at the end of the Super Bowl in, in 1999. And he says, first of, first of all, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys know that there's a lot of people that that irritates, right? It also irritates the heck out of me. And I'll tell you why. Because you never, ever hear Kurt Warner say at the end of a game where he threw an interception and they lost, you never, ever hear him say, hey, you know, I, I played horrible. That, first of all, before we talk about my bad game, I just want to say thank you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why don't the losers say that? Why is it always the winners? There's something fundamentally wrong about that because that's not the way it works, Jesus says. It's the losers who should be saying, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the gospel works out of a context of losing. The gospel works out of a context of persecution. Now, why is this? I don't know if I've answered the question. Why would that be? The answer is this, and this is going to be, I'm going to get to this more in the third point, so I don't want to rush there too fast. But the gospel is embodied losing, right? The gospel is the loss of God. The gospel is the enemy beating God. The gospel is the death of God himself. And yet somehow we turn that into the gospel is when we're successful and when we're attractive. And all that is is building false temples, temples to my own success and my own attractiveness and my own magnificent preaching and just this great church here. That's a false temple. And Jesus is going to have to blow it up. And when it happens, it's going to be painful. And so what we need to do beforehand is we need to be prepared for the death of St. James Lutheran Church. We need to be prepared for the death of Aaron's whatever it is that I'm putting my hopes in my being funny or smart or whatever it is. Because when that happens, when that happens, if I'm prepared to preach the gospel out of my own brokenness, if I'm prepared to preach the gospel out of my own failure as a pastor, if we as a church are prepared to live the gospel out of the failure of our church, we will be more connected to the cross than we would be if we were this dynamic, powerful church and I was this like awesome pastor. Because the gospel works in losing. It is when we are standing, beaten in front of the synagogue, that the gospel is being proclaimed to all nations. This is just the way it works in the scripture, right? I mean, this is not, Jesus is just, isn't just making this up out of whole cloth. Remember Joseph? Joseph is, uh, you know, sold by his brothers into slavery. And at, at the end of the story, his, he, his brothers have this conversation about it. And um, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And here's what he meant. He, he didn't mean like, well, you know, like when you threw me in that cistern, I just learned some really good lessons. They're about humility and, uh, you know, God providing. All that was true. But what Joseph sees in that is that God was prepared to deliver much people, as he has it this day, he says. This was about salvation. God was going to save large swaths of people, and he was going to do it through my slavery. What, Joseph gets the gospel. Joseph, however, what it was, 1,500 years before, 2,000 years before Jesus, gets the heart of the cross. That the gospel works in losing. Paul says the same thing. Famous text in 2 Corinthians 4. A lot of you guys know this. We have this treasure. He means the treasure of the glory of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You know, we are like the jars of clay. We're, you know, at best mundane, at worst cracked and broken. We hold the treasure in this jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, he, he doesn't mean this. He's, he's not like, I go through hard times, but I keep my chin up for Jesus. You know, things are rough being a missionary out here, but like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's, you know, stiff upper lip. That's not what he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. I'm afflicted in every way, but not crushed because, here's what he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, not because it built character, but because when he suffered, people could see Jesus. Look, this is what Glenn Carbon needs. Glenn Carbon needs to meet the crucified Jesus. Not the Jesus with the, with, with, the, uh, with, with the necktie on. Not the Jesus who's got the powerful five steps to be a better husband. All, all those things are like, I'm not saying those things are bad, but what Glenn Carbon needs is not rules on how to be a better husband, not like great architecture, 
not kind people ministering. All those things are fine, but what Glenn Carbon actually really needs is the suffering Jesus. And Paul knows the only way they're going to meet the suffering Jesus if God's people are caring about in their bodies the death of Jesus. That's going to mean the, the, the blowing up of our idols of respectability and comfort and ease. Because then when that happens, when they see the crucified Jesus, they will also see this. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. See what, Jesus, what Paul is saying is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Hey, I'm going to get myself arrested, Paul says. I'm going I'm to appeal to Caesar so I end up going to the prison at Caesar's house so that in the very heart of the evil empire, the gospel will be proclaimed. Paul gets it. Our suffering, the failure of our idols, the blowing up of our temples, God himself is using to establish his kingdom and to preach the gospel all over the world. Use the destruction of your temples to proclaim the gospel. Look, if you, if you have terminal illness and you say, Jesus is Lord, it means so much. If you lose all your money and you say, you know what, Jesus is Lord, do you know how much, loud, much louder that gospel proclamation rings than somebody who's got a lot of money saying, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. When your relationships are fracturing and you say, Jesus is Lord, do you know how powerful that is? I've said this before, like your funeral is like, that, that's, that's going to be the loudest gospel proclamation of your whole life is when you allow somebody to speak over and through your dead body, Jesus is Lord. That's so powerful. Don't run away from that. Okay, third thing and then we'll be done. Live at the foot of the cross. This all circles back to what Jesus has done for us. Enduring to the end is because Jesus is going to save us. Preaching the gospel is because Jesus used his gospel proclamation and suffering to bring about the kingdom. Then finally, living at the foot of the cross. This is always living. This is related to the point number two. Okay, I get it. Always living in the gospel reality of the crucified Jesus. Let's look at verse 8. Um, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be families. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, let me ask you a question. Birth pains, good or bad? I don't feel like I have the right to speak upon this authoritatively. But, but contemplate on your own, whether what you've experienced yourself, mothers, or whether you've watched what, watched what your wife experienced, or what, what you've read about on Wikipedia, uh, birth pains, good or bad? Well, it's both, right? And it's actually maybe the most intense both you can find. It's not like, you know, I, you know, I stubbed my toe and I fell down and I couldn't move for a few minutes. And then Angela, this is not the way we met. Angela walks by and we talk to each other. And that's how we meet. Oh, that was, you know, good. This is, there is nothing more, uh, again, on good authority. There's nothing more painful that a human can experience. This is what I'm told than squeezing another human being out of your body. It's the most painful thing that anybody can ever experience. There is no joy that anybody can know that's greater than giving birth to a son or daughter. And those two things go together. Now, am I, am I just like pulling something that Jesus said and, and, and putting too much into it? No, because birth pains, that's a super common Old Testament way to refer to the day of the Lord. I'm talking like 30, 40, 50 times the Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord and the birth pains. I'll give you one example just so you get a little bit of a flavor of it. This is from Isaiah 26. Again, there's tons of these. Just Google birth pangs or birth pains. You know, in your online concordance, you can find all these. The exiles are praying to God. The exiles in Babylon praying to God. Oh Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O oh Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. Do you get the heartache of that? What they're saying is, is that all the horrors of living in a broken world, we are experience, experiencing, but with none of the payout, with nothing. It's like, we're, it's like we're going through labor and we went through the torture of like giving birth to a baby and then we were done. Uh, there was, we, didn't, we weren't really pregnant. That's what it's like. But here's what God says. God says, you're wrong. That's not what you're experiencing. You're dead, verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. 
And Jesus is pulling on this language of birth pains to say, the most horrible thing that you can experience is going to simultaneously be the most powerful and beautiful thing you can experience. The destruction of your temples, which is horrible. It's, 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 it's paradigm shattering when that happens to you, when what you've lived for and given yourself to is taken away. But it will simultaneously be the most beautiful thing that you can experience because at the end of it, you will have Jesus. The temple that you built because you thought you were going to find something special and transcendent there is going to be taken away. And what you really longed for the whole time, the real temple is going to be given to you. Why does it work like this? Because that's the way it works at the cross. The cross is similar to giving birth to a baby because the cross is the most unholy thing in the history of the universe and simultaneously the most holy thing in the history of the universe. The worst crime, the most unrighteous thing in the history of the universe is the assassination of God. But the most righteous thing in the universe is the assassination of God. The ugliest thing in the universe is the death of Jesus. But the most beautiful thing in the universe is the death of Jesus. And when we as Christians find ourselves located in the birth pains of the cross, our idols will die, but we will receive the joy of new birth. It's exactly what that language means. So endure because that's what's being promised to you here. Endure the death of your temples because that's what's being promised here. Preach the gospel through the death of your temples because that's how the kingdom spreads. Live at the foot of the cross because Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. What the disciples, what he's warning the disciples about, he is about to experience in a matter of days time. What you are going through, the loss of your health, the loss of your family, the loss of your respect, the loss of your cultural relevance, the shattering of your dreams. He has experienced all of those things and he's about to turn those into glory. Stand with me, let's pray, then we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as inveterate false temple builders. And as soon as we realize what we're doing and start chinking away at the mortar of one and throwing down the stones, we find ourselves sometimes even unbeknownst to ourselves, building up another one right behind us. And Father, we need you to come and to knock our temples down. And I just pray that with, with a certain amount of fear, Father, because please be gentle. You, you know how fragile we are. And you know that as wrong as it is, the things that we've built our hopes into, we have tied ourselves up with those, however wrongly. So lovingly and gently, and with all the grace that we know you have in your heart for us, like, will you take those temples down and bring us to the foot of your cross? Bring us to the one real temple, your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray this morning for all of our sister LCMS churches in the area. And as uh, your people have been reading your word this morning, these same texts that we've been reading, many of them, as your word has been preached and as your sacrament has been celebrated and as your, uh, your glories and your honors have been praised in hymns, Father, will you use all of that to strengthen our church and to build us up in you? We also pray for our brother and sister gospel-believing Bible-preaching churches here in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. Father, may your kingdom grow. May your proclaimed word, may it be a source of sanctification to believers and may it be drawing unbelievers. And may all of us see your kingdom, your colony of your new creation here in Glen Carbon grow and grow more and more all the time. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray this morning for our country and for our state and for our county and for our village and city and just pray that you would guide and protect our president and our Congress people and our governor and our uh, county executive and our mayor and our uh, village council and give them wisdom. Uh, may they, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, may they, uh, uh, may they rule in righteousness and peace. Uh, may their rule reflect your holy character. I pray that you would protect and uh, Bless all first responders, our uh, police and fire people and medical responders. I pray that you would protect all of our military personnel. And we thank you, especially this week, we thank you for um, our veterans and for the service that they have uh, lived out to our country. Just bless our country and protect us, Father. And may it be a place where uh, your kingdom can uh, uh, grow and thrive and flourish. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you've united us to your son and brought us into your throne room. And now you gladly invite us to talk to you as dear children talk to their father. And so we come before you in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Confess with me our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed found in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people, Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Find somebody that you don't know or have hardly ever talked to and go speak to them and build that relationship. Go in peace.